like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Previously on Happy Face. Keith H. Jesperson, 40, made his admission Friday to Detective Rick Buckner in a telephone conversation. In um, 1995, when I heard the news about my dad, I was dating a guy named Nick. It was a very dysfunctional relationship. When things were good, they were good. When things were bad, they were extremely bad. Physical. There was something about your dad you wanted to tell me, and you weren't sure what to believe, and it was shocking, and I didn't know what to think either. Yeah, we were just young. I went back to my truck and rehearsed the lies I planned to tell when I was arrested. What made me cross the line into murder? Maybe it was my nature. There was a statement from the son of Julie Winningham, the victim. Obviously, he's torn up and devastated, rightfully so, and wanted my dad to be killed. I got pregnant my freshman year. So right after I found out is when the news hit about my dad. So I felt like the only option for me to break out of this was to not have the baby. A couple months later, I got a letter from my dad. He said, you deserve to be in prison with me. You're a killer just like me. The biggest fear is that I can be like my father. I look like my father. I wonder about DNA. In the pines, in the pines, where the sun don't ever shine, I would shiver the whole night through. Thank you. 
one of the things people ask is, how did Keith get away with it for so long? And people offer a variety of reasons. Some say he was smart or careful in many ways. But when you look at the case of his first victim, Tanya Bennett, he really just got lucky. For a few years, at least. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco. This is Happy Face. From I, The Creation of a Serial Killer, by Jack Olson. On a chilly winter day in Portland, Oregon, Tanya Bennett kissed her mother goodbye and said she was off to meet a boyfriend. She disappeared from sight in the direction of a bus stop, her Walkman plugged into her ears. Tanya was mildly retarded from oxygen deprivation at birth. She'd been a difficult child. In a cooking class at Cleveland High School, she assaulted a classmate in a quarrel over a piece of cake. Addicted to alcohol and drugs, she hustled drinks, shot pool, and got into trouble with men. Recently, she'd complained to her mother that a man had taken her home from the BNI Tavern, beaten her, and, quote, pimped me out, end quote. She said she was afraid to go back to the same bar, but her memory had always been short. When you read the Jack Olson book, or the news articles from the time, it's apparent why Tanya Bennett was chosen as prey. She comes across as pretty and sweet, but also naive and troubled. What happened to her is tragic. But what's strange about the crime is that there's so many people who wanted to take credit for it. There's a couple, Laverne Pavlinak and John Zivznovsky, who come forward and get arrested. The Oregonian, January 17, 1991, by Fred Leeson. Laverne A. Pavlinak is accused of four counts of aggravated murder, rape, sex abuse, kidnapping, and felony murder for the death of Tanya A. Bennett, a 23-year-old woman whose nude body was found last January in the Columbia Gorge. Deputy District Attorney James McIntyre told a Multnomah County Circuit Court that Pavlinak fed police anonymous tips that led to the arrest of her longtime boyfriend, John A. Sosnovsky. Then, McIntyre said, Pavlinak later told police that she had tied and held a rope around Bennett's neck while Sosnovsky beat the woman and sexually assaulted her. But Laverne and her boyfriend John weren't the only ones trying to claim credit for this case. When they were arrested for the Bennett murder, Keith wanted credit for his crime. So he started sending anonymous letters to the Oregonian and graffitiing truck stop bathrooms for attention. But the thing is, Keith gets so many of the details wrong. And you can start to wonder, did he really do it? We wanted to hear the details from Phil Stanford, the Oregon journalist who received those letters and covered the case. Quote, on or about January 20th, 1990, I picked up Sonia Bennett and took her home. I raped her and beat her real bad. Her face was all broke up. Then I ended her life by pushing my fist into her throat. Unquote. Right away, something doesn't fit. In the first place, as you already know, if you follow local crime news, the name is Tanya, not Sonia Bennett. And she was killed, according to the experts who examined the body, on the night of January 21st, not the 20th. But that's not the biggest problem here. 
The problem, if that's the word for it, is that two people are already serving time in prison for the crime. After her dad's arrest, Melissa started reading Phil Stamford's articles in The Oregonian at her local library. It's how she learned the horrific details of her dad's crimes and who her father really was. So naturally, she had a lot of questions for Phil about why her dad wasn't caught earlier. Could you tell me who these people are, these strangers, and how they're associated with my dad's case? Well, the reason Laverne Pavlinak and John Sosnowski ended up in prison for the Tanya Bennett murder is that Laverne, who is this 63-year-old dingbat, was trying to get rid of her boyfriend, who was actually much younger, a barfly. He'd get off work at the sawmill every day and, and head for the bar, and she'd have to go pick him up at the truck stop bar and bring him home, put him to bed, and he'd go, at least he was working. But she wanted to get him out of the house, and she had tried before, several times, calling his parole officer, trying to get him at least taken out of the house. It didn't work. So when she read the story inside of the Oregonian about how a body had been found in the gorge, she made an anonymous call to the sheriff's office saying she thought it was this guy, John Sosnowski. <laughs> and when that didn't work, she made another call like that. They eventually figured out who it was coming from, so the sheriff's office went out and talked to her. And she said, yeah, she was at the bar, and she heard him bragging about wasting a woman in the gorge. And they came back the next day with a search warrant. And she didn't have anything more to say, but on the search warrant, they said they were looking for that fly that had been cut off her jeans and her purse that was missing. Right. Next day, uh, Laverne called in and said she had the fly. And the first, she found him in the trunk of uh, John's car. So they said, oh boy. So they came out and got him. Well, they analyzed him and they realized it wasn't the fly from her jeans and it wasn't her purse. I wasn't aware of that. And, and without telling the whole story, she kept lying again and they'd find out the next lie was wrong. And so she upped it. And, and, and after about five visits, she convinced him by saying she had participated in the murder with John Sosnowski, in fact, had held the rope around her neck while he raped her. Wow. Which was nonsense. And they said, thank you very much. So she wasn't any longer a witness who might be making up stories. She was an accomplice. They charged her and the boyfriend she was trying to get out of the house. Of course, by the time the case came to trial, she said, no, I was just making it up. But the videotape they'd made of her false confession convinced the jury they convicted her, and when Sosnowski saw what was happening, he took a plea because he realized that if he went to trial and they convicted, had already convicted Laverne, he'd probably end up getting executed. So he pled guilty. That's Laverne Pavlinak and John Sosnowski. So this is all intriguing, but we wanted to know... How did the police get this so wrong? We spoke with private investigator Chris Peterson, who worked as a detective for the Multnomah County Sheriff's Department at the time of Tanya Bennett's murder. So they were already tried and found guilty and sent to prison. That's correct. 
When I got involved, they were they had been in prison for some time. What what was the police reaction to the letters and the graffiti claiming the actual killer was still at large? Um, you know, I really don't have a good answer for that. Detective Ingram wrote the report on the night bartender, Ann Wilson. Quote, Miss Wilson was asked specifically about January 21st, 1990. And she recalled Tanya Bennett being in the tavern at 5 p.m. when she arrived for work. Miss Wilson said Tanya Bennett seemed to hang around with two guys who were playing pool at a table at the east end of the tavern. Unquote. Wilson described one of the men as being about 30 years old, about 6'2", with short blonde hair. All she could remember about the second one is that he was somewhat shorter. Although the detectives never did succeed in identifying the two young men seen playing pool with Tanya on the night of the murder, at the time they could have been excused for thinking that they were on the right track. Before the day was over, though, they would have reason to change their minds. It's like a sick comedy of error. I mean, it's... Oh, yeah, it's a very dark, dark comedy. The caller, a woman, said she had overheard a man in JB's, a restaurant at the Burns Brothers truck stop in Wilsonville, bragging that he had killed Tanya Bennett. A week later, February 12th, the same woman called the Clackamas County Sheriff's Department and gave them the same information. As she reminded them, the man, his name she said was John Sosnowski, was on probation in Clackamas County. Maybe they could check him out. Ingram called Sosnowski's parole officer, Steve Bracey, and together they figured out who was probably making the calls. Her name was Laverne Pavlinak. As we heard the details of the story, there is a little doubt that creeps in. Keith got the names and dates wrong. And as Melissa realized, there's one detail Laverne got right. She did come up with one really critical piece of evidence, and I don't know how she manufactured this, but she brought the detectives to where Tanya Bennett's body was found. How? Well, well they drove her out to the, the place along this old scenic highway, and one of the things that the, the detectives thought was so convincing was that she said, oh, it was over there. Well, they'd already marked the, the place with red dye or, or, or some sort of red marker along the highway. So Laverne saw the the marker on the highway and realized that's probably where the body was. Yeah, there's obviously a, a, a crime scene. On the strength of Pavlinak's confession, which she tried to explain away at trial, a jury convicted her. To avoid a possible death sentence for aggravated murder, Sosnowski then pleaded no contest to felony murder and rape. Three years later, Sosnowski has exhausted all his appeals. Pavlinak's plea for a new trial was rejected this month by the Oregon Court of Appeals. Never a high-profile case to begin with, the murder of Tanya Bennett became a closed one. And quite likely, if it weren't for the anonymous letter, that arrived at the Oregonian earlier this month from a man claiming to have killed five women in Oregon and California, including Tanya Bennett, the case might well have remained forgotten. 
Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As reporter Phil Stamford told us, had Keith not started writing the newspaper, police might never have found him. 
But to hear more about that, Melissa and I reached out to Jim McNeely, a retired detective from the Multnomah County Sheriff's Department. I got involved when we started getting the letters sent to us from your dad. Somebody sent us some pictures of some writing on the, the wall in the, the restroom in Montana where they said some two people were in jail for something I did. And that was followed up by a letter that came to the uh, Washington County Courts or something, and they forwarded it to us. And then another letter came to a Phil Stanford a reporter in the Oregonian, and that letter eventually came to us. And then when we followed up on the case when your dad came, there was a lot of talk around the department that we still had the right people and, and whoever was writing these letters was making this stuff up. So that's when I got involved with it and my partner, Chris Peterson, and we followed up on it from there. In an interview this week at the Oregon State Prison, Sosnovsky, once the passive barfly, bristled with anger when asked whether he was guilty of killing Tanya Bennett. I never met the girl, he said. I never killed anybody in my life. He blames everything, he said in a rambling diatribe, on a conspiracy that includes the Oregon State Bar, the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office, the detectives who investigated the case, and of course, his former housemate, Laverne Pavlinak. She framed me, he said. So then when you get this letter from my dad and he said, I killed Tanya Bennett, did you instantly believe this letter was true? What did you think about this letter? Well, there was something very believable about it. He knew what he was talking about, and he had information on those murders that uh, hadn't been in the papers down wherever the, the bodies were found. So there was something to it, and it was a matter then of going back and analyzing the Tanya Bennett case, the uh, investigation. And what I contributed really was a sort of a deconstruction of the case, showing that they'd manufactured the, the case, they'd, they'd manufactured the confession. So when you got that letter, that was one letter, but you ultimately received more letters. Is that correct? Yeah. After he was captured, we corresponded. Okay. We were trying together to prove that the DA was wrong and he was guilty of the Tanya Bennett murder. Which is interesting <laughs> that he's trying to prove his guilt. He, um, wanted, he wanted credit. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever meet my dad in person? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, after he was arrested, I talked to him in, in the Clark County Jail, and they just let him out. There was a big folding picnic table, and here I was sitting across from this hulking guy. I mean, he's very big, I guess six seven, something like that, and talking to him about the Tanya Bennett murder and as the conversation quickly developed how we were going to prove that he was guilty of the Tanya Bennett murder. What was he saying to you? He, I'm, I'm not sure to this day how to read him at, at that point. I, at the time, I thought he, he was sort of unburdening his soul if he wanted to confess. 
another way of looking at it, of course, would be that he wanted to get credit for this. And, and it was his way of, of sort of proving that he was establishing this identity. Did he come across as wanting your help? Well, he wanted my help, and of course I wanted his, you know. Uh, what I needed was some way to prove that he was telling the truth about Tanya Bennett. And so he offered two ways of proving it. One was that when he killed her, he said blood was everywhere. It even splattered on the ceiling. Oh, my gosh. I actually stayed in the house where Tanya Bennett was murdered. And there was a night that I went and slept in the living room on the couch. And I remember looking up at the ceiling and seeing splatter on the ceiling, thinking it was spaghetti sauce. And just staring at it as I was trying to go to sleep. And when you just said that, I wonder if I was looking at blood. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. So I went back to the house. It had been bought and sold, and they had, the new owners had painted that room, the bedroom, including the ceiling. I, I went to the DA with that. And I said, you could scrape the paint off and and, and do a a DNA analysis. And he said, no, we don't want to do that. The other thing he said, uh, that Keith said was, after he dropped off Tanya's body in the gorge, driving back, he threw her purse out at a certain place. And he remembered where it was, uh, as a field. And in fact, that is eventually how it was proved to the DA's satisfaction to the court's satisfaction, that he was telling the truth and that he killed Tanya Bennett because one of the sheriff's deputies, uh, Jim McNelly, who's really the the hero in this, took a troop of Boy Scouts out to that field and for two or three days cut away the blackberry bushes that had grown up there. I mean, uh, they grow fast in Oregon and it was four years growth. Yeah, but up there, it gets dense. And they found the purse with her ID. Wow. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. 
Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Jesperson kind of saw you as as a partner in this. Yeah, it was very strange. We were conspiring together. <laughs> Here we were, I was working for a newspaper, and, and he was trying to confess to a murder. We both knew that two people were in prison for a crime he'd committed. But the authorities, the sheriff's department and the uh, DA's office, certainly weren't going to admit they'd made a mistake like that. And basically, what developed is that we were conspiring to prove that he was guilty. Now, you have to remember, this is Phil's opinion on the way the investigation was handled. Police have their own story. I got word from a friend of mine at the sheriff's office that the detective who'd been the leader in getting the false confession from Laverne Pavlinak in the Tiny Bennett case had been down in the state prison talking to Jesperson encouraging him to say that I had given him the information that he had given to the police to prove that he killed Tanya Bennett. In other words, he's trying to get Jesperson to frame me. 
And to his eternal credit, as far as I'm concerned, he did not lie about it. He said, no, it didn't happen. And it would have been very easy for him to lie. And after all, it wouldn't hurt him at all. And and he might have even been able to bargain it into uh, extra privileges for helping out this detective. But he didn't. And I have to say I honor him for that. Keith's code of honor is more than a bit twisted here. He wouldn't tolerate dishonest cops, thought himself above them, and yet he was a brutal rapist and murderer. So when my dad was ultimately convicted for Tanya Bennett's murder, what happened to John and Laverne? Well, they were released, of course. And how much time did they serve in prison before they were released? I think about a couple of years. Wow. And I I don't know anything about Laverne's experience in prison, uh, but it was particularly hard on John Sosnowski, who was not a very strong person to begin with. I mean, he was an alcoholic uh, and uh, he was sort of, he sort of lost it. They, they put him in a, a, a room in prison for the people who were mentally disturbed. It's called the Thunderdome. What? A Thunderdome? Why? What What happens in the Thunderdome? Uh, it was a big holding tank with a guard sort of suspended in the middle on, on a grate. And what I remember about the story is that Sosnowski would just howl. Here he was locked up for life for something he had pled guilty to. But even at the time he pled guilty, he knew he was not guilty of. Is completely innocent of. That would that would drive me crazy. Yeah, that would drive me crazy. Uh, yeah. That. What else could you do but scream? Oh yeah. Did you ever talk to Laverne or John? Do you think that they regretted this? Um, I talked with Laverne, and I don't think she really. Re- uh, I'm sure she regretted it, but I'm not convinced she <laughs> ever really understood. How, how wrong what she did was. She was emotionally dulled herself. I mean, she was taking a lot of pills, fantasized a lot, read a lot of cheap detective stories, which is probably how she got the idea that she could turn someone in for a murder and it would just all go away. Melissa and I were curious, though. How did John and Laverne react to being freed? Here's Detective Chris Peterson again. John Sosnovsky, when I went down to interview him in the prison with with the prosecutor, a prosecutor, uh, he was incoherent. He was babbling. It was actually a little bit scary. Laverne acted like a grandmother when we were working with her. I mean, uh, she was pretty calm, collected, and... She did her very best to convince me that she wasn't responsible for the murder, which was true. I think I think we uh, had her take a polygraph. I don't think we had Sosnowski take a polygraph because of his mental state. But It sounds like he was another one of Jesperson's victims indirectly. John Sosnowski was definitely a victim of, of Jesperson and Laverne. I mean, uh, those people particularly Laverne, had no place in an institution. She created a, 
a space in an institution for herself by confessing on a tape, and it was played to a jury, and they convicted her. But uh, he victimized those two, and as well as a lot of victims that didn't survive. Did she ever thank you? She was uh, very unappreciative of of our efforts to get her out. The family um, never really spoke to us. They were critical, I think, of the police. And I think the district attorney's office in Multnomah County and, and the sheriff's office in Portland did a great job in terms of getting to the bottom of this case and admitting that a mistake had been made. And the district attorney and the sheriff both told me that I don't, we don't want you doing anything else until this matter gets resolved to our satisfaction. And just because I'm curious, with Laverne and John, were they immediately released after my dad was sentenced that day? No, no, they weren't. Post-conviction relief is a very complicated legal procedure, and there's really no remedy for reversing a jury's decision in, in the state of Oregon. If a jury finds you guilty of homicide, it's, it's kind of chipped in stone. So they were not released immediately. It took a while to get them out of prison. It wasn't like your dad gets convicted and the doors open. My understanding is that John Sosnowski, I'm assuming John's still alive, still has a murder conviction on his record because post-conviction relief, meaning changing a verdict's opinion of a jury, is very difficult to do in the state of Oregon and, and most states. How horrible. Matter, so. How horrible for John that he would have this still potentially on his record, even though he was completely innocent. That must have impacted his employment, his, his life after this. That, that's really surprising, though, you know, that it would be like that. Yeah, it is, but that, that was the state of the law 25 years ago, and I don't know that it's changed. From I, The Creation of a Serial Killer, by Jack Olson. In jail, awaiting transport to the state penitentiary, he continued to play the lead role in his own dramatic production. On the day that John Sosnowski and Laverne Pavlinak were freed for good, he described his reaction to the Associated Press. Quote, I started crying. I couldn't help myself for about 10 minutes. I lost total composure. I was just very overjoyed. Basically, my feeling is, God bless them. End quote. He didn't explain why he'd allowed them to serve four years for his crimes. So, Don Fendley, who is the son of Jesperson's last known victim, Julianne Winningham, he has a lot of anger towards Laverne, who is now deceased, but he believes that if she hadn't lied, if she hadn't tried to frame John, that there is a chance that Jesperson could have been stopped before he murdered seven more women, including his own mother. I mean, uh, I understand his concern, and, and of course, he didn't murder anybody after he murdered Julie because he he was arrested. But you know, I don't want to speculate that that this thing would have been solved any earlier. But it's hard to for I can't say that if it hadn't been for Laverne. The, Keith would have been arrested because he was not on anybody's radar in, in Multnomah County over the Tonya Bennett case. Mm-hmm. 
There's always been one person Melissa has been afraid to meet. The son of Jesperson's last victim, Don Findlay. I'm terrified that he's going to lash out on me and blame me for his mom's murder. I texted him for weeks. uh, And when he finally returned my text, he didn't want to meet you in person. He had a lot of anger. You know, from his point of view, you're the daughter of the man who murdered his mother. But we spoke for a couple of hours, and I was finally able to convince him to meet you. Happy Faces, a production of How Stuff Works. Executive producers are Melissa Moore, Lauren Bright Pacheco, Mangesha Ticketer, and Will Pearson. Supervising producer is Noel Brown. Music by Claire Campbell, Paige Campbell, and Hope for a Golden Summer. Story editor is Matt Riddle. Audio editing by Chandler Mays and Noel Brown. Assistant editor is Taylor Chacoin. Special thanks to Phil Stanford, the publishers of the Oregonian newspaper, and KATU News in Portland, Oregon. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.